Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today, we will be discussing the first work of fiction on our list of essential texts. It's a short story called The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And if you haven't read it, or if you haven't read it in a while, then I encourage you to press pause on this podcast right now and go read it really quick and then come back. Or even easier, you can listen to it. It's only about 40 minutes long and you can find it on Audible or for free on LibriVox or YouTube. It was written in 1892, so it's in the public domain now, which means it's free and it's a really, really good story. So just go read or listen to it if you haven't already and then come back. Okay, so welcome back. <laughs> Today, we are going to be discussing Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper. But first, I want to introduce my reading partner, Shannon Johnson. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Amy. <laughs> so Shannon, why don't you start us off um, and just dive into the book and tell us how we're going to start reading it. Okay. The story. Okay. I'm really excited to talk about this story. Uh, it had been since before I gave birth myself that I had read this novel, um, probably in high school. I don't even remember reading it in college. Uh, this is a deceptively simple tale. Uh, it functions as both a thrilling short story, and it is quite short, um, and it's a parable on the dangers and consequences of unchecked patriarchy. Um, and so this is the last warning for anyone who doesn't want spoilers, but I did want to go over the plot briefly. A young woman is brought to this grand house for the summer by her physician husband. She has mixed feelings about the house, and she even mentions how romantic it would be if the house were haunted in like the second paragraph. Uh, she has been unwell, but her husband doesn't think anything's really wrong with her. Um, and even though he thinks that she's okay, he hopes that this enforced rest at this new environment will be good for her. Uh, and it's not until about a quarter of the way into the story that we learn that she recently had a baby. And she expresses her love for the baby, but she doesn't sound attached to him and she's not engaged with his care. Her husband forbids her from writing or doing any kind of work, but she sneaks around and, and she finds solace in describing the house in a secret journal. For some reason, um, like descriptive exposition seems to her like an okay form of writing that she like justifies in her own mind that it's going to be okay. Anyway, she focuses on her immediate physical surroundings, which is this room at the top of the house and this wallpaper that like both calls to her and also repels her. Um, she begins to see a woman being held captive behind the outer pattern of the wallpaper. And she becomes more and more ill and, and, and you realize that she's suffering from some sort of psychosis. She has hallucinations. She contemplates suicide. She, she makes like elaborate plots to free the woman who is stuck in the wallpaper. And on, after they've been there for presumably like three or four months for the summertime, on the evening before their departure back to the city, she in a frenzy starts tearing off uh, big sections of the wallpaper and then she eventually becomes the woman who has been stuck in the wallpaper and it's just such a great story it's a it's a woman's genre story written by and for other women it's not a philosophical or academic treatise uh, and she had a really specific audience in mind she was writing in similar circumstances and literary connections uh, similar to Louisa May Alcott who 50 years earlier was writing pot boilers to support her family 
before she made it big with Little Women. Um, so Gilman's choice of form suits the per- purpose of her narrative perfectly. She, um, since her narrator is like is not even named ever, and she is an unreliable narrator, and she just reports the dialogue. So she's able to say things that sound too bad to be true like John laughs at me and but we'll talk about that in the discussion of patriarchy and marriage for now I just want to focus on um, her central image the wallpaper itself uh, to talk about how it functions both as a physical barrier and the focal point for the dramatic action of the story and then how it also works as a pretty straightforward meta straightforward metaphor for the for the like oppressive nature of patriarchy. So I'm going to read a couple quotes and notice her energetic and evocative word choice. Um, so this is the wallpaper as just a decorative element. She says, it is dull enough to confuse the eye in following, pronounced enough to constantly irritate and provoke study. And when you follow the lame, uncertain curves for a little distance, they suddenly commit suicide plunge off at outrageous angles, destroy themselves in unheard of contradictions. The color is repellent, almost revolting, a smoldering, unclean yellow, strangely faded by the slow-turning sunlight. And then as she gets sicker, um, she says, behind that outside pattern, the dim shapes get clearer every day. It is always the same shape, only very numerous. And it is like a woman stooping down and creeping about behind that pattern. And then she even starts to think that she sees the figure in the wallpaper seeming to shake the pattern. And she calls it a bad dream, something that the pattern itself is something that slaps you in the face, knocks you down and tramples upon you. And by the end, um, she is not seeing only the one woman in the wallpaper. She's seen perhaps many peop- women and they are shaking the bars of the pattern. And she is all the time trying to climb through, but nobody could climb through that pattern. It strangles. So I think that is why it has so many heads. Um, and so then Amy, I thought two of the quotes that you pulled from the uh, short story were so fascinating about how, Really, her metaphor works not only within this story, but as a as a metaphor for your entire project. Yeah, I well, I just found myself relating as she talks about the um, the wallpaper and the um, the it, it almost seems like like you said that that women are shaking the bars from behind it. Um, there were some quotes. Maybe I'll just read the quotes from earlier a few pages before that. Um, I'll read two quotes. This wallpaper has a kind of sub pattern in a different shade, a particularly irritating one for you can only see it in certain lights and not clearly then. But in the places where it isn't faded and where the sun is just so, I can see a strange provoking formless sort of figure that seems to skulk about behind that silly and conspicuous front design. So there I, I thought of um, my own experience with kind of very slowly beginning to wake up to the existence of patriarchy. And that's really, I mean, that's the experience that I see here that, that, that um, the narrator is looking at that wallpaper and like, 
you can't really discern, you can't see the pattern very well. Um, and so you just see this, you have this sense of like something skulking behind that, that front design. I can't tell what it is. The next quote is um, kind of a continuation of that feeling. Uh, the narrator says, I determined for the thousandth time that I will follow that pointless pattern to some sort of a con conclusion. I know a little of the principle of design, and I know this thing was not arranged on any laws of radiation or alternation or repetition or symmetry or anything else that I have ever heard of. Um, and so, yeah, that's, uh, I think, I think it can be argued that Gilman is using that wallpaper metaphor as like the patriarchy and like the bars. And I just really, really related to it. And that feeling of like, wait a second, something's off. <laughs> and then needing to do a bunch of work to figure out um, the logic of the pattern in order to get out, right? Right, right. So that that actually bridges, unless you have something else, Shannon, that yep. bridges nicely into the next thing that we were going to talk about, actually, which is the historical context, because we didn't set that up um, at the beginning of the episode. We thought we'd talk about the story first, but um, there are a couple of um, notions that were present in the 19th century that any of Gilman's readers would have been familiar with at the time. And it's important to understand as we um, because this podcast is a historical project, um, I think it's good to spend a couple minutes just talking about um, some of the constructs that existed in the 1890s. So I'll talk about just three of them really quick. Um, the first are the laws of coverture. And those we mentioned those on a different podcast briefly, but just to review, um, the laws of coverture, uh, was, it, it was a legal doctrine whereby Upon marriage, a woman's legal rights and obligations were subsumed by those of her husband. Um, so this attitude that the man just covers the woman and doesn't see her as an adult peer affects every aspect of society and relationships, as you can imagine. So women are really, truly, once they're married, they're regarded as perpetual children. Um, and that leads to the second point, which is the separate spheres ideologies. So the patriarchal ideology of separate spheres was based primarily on notions of biologically determined gender roles and patriarchal religious doctrine. And it claims that women should avoid the public sphere. So the domain of politics, paid work, common, commerce, and law. And women's proper sphere, according to this ideology, is the realm of domestic life. So just focused on childcare and housework and religion. Um, so the third, um, kind of aspect of life uh, that would have been familiar to 19th century readers is the notion of female hysteria. So if you think back to like the stereotype of the fainting woman in like the 18th and 19th centuries who always needs smelling salts on hand, like if there's anything mildly upsetting, she'll just like pass out um, and or, or the emotionally out of control woman. Um, but there's this perception in the culture that women are super emotional and they freak out in hysterics all the time. Um, so we'll leave those topics at that and maybe um, talk a little bit about Gilman herself, the author. Okay. Yeah, she had a fascinating life. Uh, she was born in 1860 in Connecticut. Uh, she only had one brother. Her father left them when she was really young, and so she was very poor for most of her childhood. And since her mom 
wasn't able to support the family on their own. Uh, they were often living with or around her father's aunts. And one of those aunts was Harriet Beecher Stowe, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, her mother forbade her from making strong friendships and from reading fiction. And I don't know if that's because she wanted her to have a strong character and and not be hurt by people as, as her mom had been by her father. Um, anyway, she wrote in her autobiography that her mother showed affection only when she thought Charlotte was asleep. So, And then even though her father had abandoned them, uh, years later he contacted her with a list of books that he thought that she should read. And so, and then when she was 18, she enrolled at the Rhode Island School of Design and her father helped her monetarily. So um, at the Rhode Island School of Design, she worked as a painter of trade cards, uh, like a modern uh, business card, and as a tutor. In 1884, so she would have been 24 years old, she married the artist Charles Stetson. Uh, initially, she declined his proposal because she thought it wasn't right for her, but they, but and she, I don't know what kind of pressure she had, um, but they got married. And it was within a year that she had her only child, Catherine Beecher Stetson. Uh, and then Charlotte experienced a very serious um, illness with postpartum depression. And she was actually treated by the foremost famous doctor who was treating what was then called neurasthenia in both men and women. Um, also known as hysterian women, but it also had this other term by this point. And his name was Dr. Silas Weir Mitchell. And his advice to her at this time, this was in the late 1880s, he said, live as domestic a life as possible. Have your child with you all the time. Lie down an hour after each meal. Have but two hours intellectual life a day. And never touch pen, brush, or pencil as long as you live. And remember, she's in her she's in her 20s at this point. So um, after a while, they moved to South, Southern California. And so that would have been a big change for her from the East Coast to the West Coast. And they lived with a friend, Grace Ellery Channing, who was actually the, gra- the granddaughter of William Ellery Channing, the, the founder and famous pastor of the Unitarian Church in the United States. Uh, and a few years later, they separated uh, Charlotte and her husband. And and at this time, Charlotte was becoming really active in feminist and reform organizations. And one of them I thought was really fascinating was called the Nationalist Club. And it's not what we think of as nationalism nowadays, but it was a, an organization dedicated to ending capitalism's greed and ending distinctions between the classes while promoting a peaceful, ethical, and truly progressive human race. Um, and so this is at the same time of period as like uh, the muckrakers and and mm. where journalism was really coming into its um, fruition as like, you know, be, doing investigations and everything. Anyway, she published poetry. She she made a living for herself on the lecture circuit. She wrote essays. And then it was in 1890 that she wrote the yellow wallpaper. She actually gave it to her friend, William Dean Howells, who is a famous man of letters. And he sent it to the Atlantic Monthly. But the editor there thought it would make miser- readers as miserable as the story made himself. And so it wasn't until a couple of years later that it was published in the New England magazine. Um, so then after Charlotte's mother died, she moved back from California back east. In 1932, uh, she was diagnosed with incurable breast cancer. And she had been an advocate for euthanasia 
for the terminally ill. And so she took an overdose of chloroform a few years later. And in both her autobiography and her suicide note, she wrote that she chose chloroform over cancer. And then her death was pretty quick and peaceful. And I I just think it's so significant that at the end of her life, she was able to take control of both her health and her life, actually, and, and choose how to how to finish her life. So mm-hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. That shows a lot about her sense of autonomy, right? And her personal voice and trusting her own personal convictions. That's really encouraging that she was able to uh, to find that at that time, right? In that environment. Yeah. Um, thanks, Shannon, for that bio. That was, yeah, fascinating. Um, and so now we're going to highlight three of the main themes that we identified within the short story. Um, I'm going to start with patriarchy in marriage, and then Shannon, uh, you'll do patriarchy within the medical field at the time, and then um, I'll talk about women writing, and then we'll wrap up. So first, patriarchy in marriage, as described in the yellow wallpaper. So um, one of the main features in the narrator's marriage with her husband, John, who, like you said, is also her physician. So he's her, he has like that dual role of her husband and her doctor. Um, and one of the main features in that relationship is that he does make her feel like she's crazy. So um, I just wanted to start with the definition of the term gaslighting. It's a term that people use a lot. So gaslighting is um, manipulating someone to make them think that the problem is them or that they're crazy when actually they are not the problem and they're not crazy. So I would say that this is one of the themes in the story um, because the narrator is constantly being told that she's wrong, not just about the wallpaper, but just about her own feelings and her own inclinations and um, her, for example, wanting to go outside and go for a walk, saying like, no, 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 that's not what you need. And she wants to write, no, 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 that's going to be bad for you. She's just not trusted. And so she starts to distrust herself and and think that she's she's crazy, which, which interestingly leads to um, her, her um, additional deterioration um, because she isn't able to trust herself. So in addition to the theme of gaslighting, I wanted to share just some excerpts to show how Gilman depicts this marriage. And again, like you said, um, the whole story is told from the point of view of the narrator, and she's not necessarily a reliable narrator, but it's a first-person um, perspective. So the first quote is on the very first page, and the, the woman says, John laughs at me, of course, but one expects that in marriage. Um, so just a very telling um, observation that I think just indicates maybe how a woman would perceive marriage in general in the late 1800s. Um, she then says, on the second page, she says, I get unreasonably angry with John sometimes. I'm sure I never used to be so sensitive. I think it is due to this nervous condition. But John says, if I feel so angry, I shall neglect proper self-control. So I take pains to control myself, before him at least. And that makes me very tired. She then says, I'm just going to read a few of these quotes because they kind of speak for themselves and create um, overall the sense of what the relationship is like. Another quote is, he's very careful and loving and hardly lets me stir without special direction. 
He takes all care from me, and so I feel basely ungrateful not to value it more. Um, okay, and then one last one, and then I'll, I'll talk about it a bit. The last one is, Dear John, he loves me very dearly and hates to have me sick. I tried to have a real earnest, reasonable talk with him the other day and tell him how I wish he would let me go and make a visit to Cousin Henry and Julia, but he said I wasn't able to go, nor able to stand it after I got there, and I did not make out a very good case for myself, for I was crying before I had finished. So I, I wanted to just highlight a couple of things from there. Just there are those two abusive tactics um, where the person who has power, whether it's a husband or a father or an authoritarian leader in, in even of a country, knows that the dependent party are in their debt. And so they leverage that and they use it to manipulate. So um, where she says um, that she feels ungrateful, he takes all care for me. And so I feel basely ungrateful not to value it more. I just, I, I think that this is um, a really common dynamic in patriarchal relationships, especially when the man inhabits the the public sphere. And so he's the breadwinner that it puts it just by virtue of that alone, it puts um, the man in the position of the provider. And so everybody else in the family is dependent upon them. And so it just is really a recipe for manipulating gratitude. You know what I mean? And saying like, how dare you question me after everything I've done for you? And um, that just really struck a chord with me as being something that's very familiar that I've witnessed in lots of relationships. And, and another thing is that last quote where she said like, oh, I didn't make a very good case for myself because I was crying before I had finished. And just that that sense of frustration and the futility of her trying to argue and, and trying to represent her own point of view. And, and in that, that um, desperation that she starts crying in this relationship, obviously that's looked down on and that display of, again, it's like feminine emotionality is then anything she has to stay, say is just discounted by saying, Oh, you're so emotional and placing the fault on this woman who's actually not being treated fairly. And, um, and the heartbreaking thing to me is that she describes herself that way, like, oh, I'm so emotional, what's wrong with me? So she's, she's very much internalized that view of herself. Um, one more thing that I want to share on this is um, there are a bunch of quotes where the narrator describes her husband as being really tender with her, that John um, gathers her up in his arms and carries her upstairs, and he very gently lays her on the bed and sits by her and calls her his darling, and and he says you you have to take care of yourself and and be well, and um, he calls her little girl, <laughs> which is of course patronizing, but the sense that I got um, from those parts too, and I was actually really glad that Gilman included them because I think his character would have been too flat if he had just been like this domineering, um, abusive husband. It really, to me, highlighted the reality that relationships are complicated. And so I just wanted to mention that as well. Um, but it's very rare to find like a truly 100% misogynistic like man who actually really, truly loathes his wife. <laughs> 
um, it's more common that he actually really does love his wife, but is just extremely misguided and does a lot of abusive things, but perhaps not on purpose, which isn't to excuse it, but just to understand it better. It's all tangled up together and it's really hard to tease out those elements. Anyway, those were my thoughts on um, the patriarchal aspects of their marriage. Did you have anything that you wanted to bring out from there, Shannon? Well, I, I think that's... Um... Did you, I'm sorry, did you read the part where he said, uh, he said I was his darling and his comfort and all he had and that I must take care of myself for his sake and keep well. Um, To me, that is just exactly what you were just talking about is the fact that, that he, he does try to manipulate her by telling her how much she means to him and, and that, that she has to take care of herself for his sake. And, and, and he just, it's just not a partnership and just that they are not equals. And, and no matter how much he loves her, it just reads everything he says to her sounds like a paternal relationship or a fatherly relationship. It does not sound like, like two equals talking. So. Absolutely. And it, and it wouldn't have been right at all, but that's a really great point. I'm glad you actually brought that quote back out. Cause I hadn't read it, but um, should we go on to the next part? Yeah. I think one of the biggest ironies is that even though the husband, John, doesn't think she's sick, he still completely uh, over-treats her with phosphates and phosphites. He tries to control her diet, even her air intake. You know, he says that it's okay. You can breathe. You can breathe as much air as you want to. You need to kind of work on your diet, but the air's fine. Um, he tries to control her exercise. He tries to control what she thinks about. Um, he moves her physically from the city to this this you know rural estate. Um, upends her entire routine just after she's given birth. And and then this is I just have to read this part where. Um, even though she she tells him that she's getting worse, but he responds, you really are better, dear, whether you can see it or not. I am a doctor, dear, and I know. You are gaining flesh and color. Your appetite is better. I feel really much easier about you. And she responds, I don't weigh a bit more, nor as much. And my appetite may be better in the evening when you are here, but it is worse in the morning when you are away. And his response is, Bless her little heart, said he with a big hug. She shall be as sick as she pleases. And there he's not even talking about her in the second person. He's not even responding to her. He's literally moved to talking to her in the third person. There's also this like, and maybe this is just appropriate to the time period, but this like fear and ignorance about mental illness in general. Um, there's He has this feeling that even acknowledging the problem would make it worse. Uh, and so he says, at one point, he says, my darling, I beg of you for my sake and for our child's sake, well, as well as for your own, that you will never for one instant let that idea enter your mind. There is nothing so dangerous, so fascinating to a temper like yours. It is a false and foolish fancy. Can you not trust me as a physician when I tell you so? And when I was reading this quote out of context the other day, I was like, did she tell him that she was suicidal? And that's the idea that's so dangerous and so fascinating. So I had to go back to the original text and I was like, no, he's just worried. She just says that she's disturbed in her mind, that that she feels mentally unwell. And that is the dangerous idea. That's so interesting. Okay. Our last point will be brief. 
Um, but I do still want to mention it because it's, we've, we've kind of talked about it a little bit. We've touched on it a bit, but the act of women writing, um, okay. So uh, she, you get this sense from the narrator too, that she has to hide her pen and paper whenever John comes home. Um, and then just two more quotes, you can see like the progression of how being told that she shouldn't be writing and having to hide it from people is so exhausting, but then it leads her to actually be like, you know what, it's not even worth it. So she says, I think sometimes that if I were only well enough to write a little, it would relieve the press of ideas and rest me. But I find I get pretty tired when I try. And again, she's getting tired when she tries because she has so much opposition working against her. It's not the it's not the act of writing that's tiring her out. It's the having to hide it and having to pretend and maybe probably feeling guilty that she's doing it. So sadly, um, several pages later, she says she, she writes these very short sentences. She writes, I don't know why I should write this. I don't want to. I don't feel able. And I know John would think it is absurd. But I must say what I feel and think in some way, it is such a relief. But the effort is getting to be greater than the relief. And that's, I think, the last thing she even says about writing. And you get, I mean, the, the sense that the, she then gives up. She then just gives up and doesn't write anymore. I think also there kind of not, it's, it's after that point. There's only like two more pages or so, I think. But it almost becomes more of a stream of consciousness before she seems conscious of her reader and that like an interlocutor she's like I, I'm I'm writing this stuff for you and she just seems more like like it's all it's more meta or she's able to step outside of it and have a better perspective of everything but then mm -hmm. after this point she just starts to get subsumed into um, the stream of consciousness about the wallpaper and the woman and then it, it's she just becomes one with first the narrative and then one with the woman in the wallpaper, right? She goes from being an objective observer to what's going on around the house to becoming the subject of it herself, I think. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Great point. Great point. Um, that brings us to the end of our discussion. This was just fantastic, Shannon. Thank you so much for being here. And you were so smart uh -huh. and so insightful. <laughs> and I just, I love chatting with you. I love having any reason to talk to talk with you and talking about literature is like an extra bonus and such a joy. So thanks so much for spending the time. Oh, Shannon. well, thanks for having me. I really, uh, thanks for giving me the excuse to read this again. And it was really fun to talk to you about it.